When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So to start with, here are two poems from Heaney's 1984 collection, Station Island. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Station Island is a place uh, of Catholic pilgrimage. So in the title sequence that I'll, I will read a poem from in a minute, uh, Heaney makes a trip there, and as he goes along the pilgrimage route, he encounters uh various people, various presences. But the first poem here that I wanted to read is called The Railway Children, and is, I believe, a memory of from Heaney's childhood of being out on the farm and listening to the radio and being sort of uh, enchanted by the magic of the voice coming through the, through the box and uh, of it traveling along the wires. And I'm pretty sure he picked up on this image and this experience again in his Nobel Prize lecture about 10 or 11 years later. This is called The Railway Children. When we climbed the slopes of the cutting, we were eye-level with the white cups of the telegraph poles and the sizzling wires. Like lovely freehand, they curved for miles east and miles west beyond us sagging under their burden of swallows. We were small and thought we knew nothing worth knowing. We thought words traveled the wires in the shiny pouches of raindrops, each one seated full with the light of the sky, the gleam of the lines, and ourselves so infinitesimally scaled we could stream through the eye of a needle. It's a wonderful little little poem there. This is part seven, then, of Station Island. I had come to the edge of the water, soothed by just looking, idling over it as if it were a clear barometer or a mirror, when his reflection did not appear, but I sensed a presence entering into my concentration, on not being concentrated as he spoke my name. And though I was reluctant, I turned to meet his face, and the shock is still with me at what I saw. His brow was blown open above the eye, and blood had dried on his neck and cheek. Easy now, he said, it's only me. You've seen men as raw after a football match. What time it was, when I wakened up I still don't know, but I heard this knocking, knocking and it scared me, 
like the phone in the small hours. So I had the sense not to put on the light, but looked out from behind the curtain. I saw two customers on the doorstep, and an old Land Rover with the doors open, parked on the street. So I let the curtains drop. But they must have been waiting for it to move, for they shouted to me to come down into the shop. She started to cry then and roll around the bed, lamenting and lamenting to herself, not even asking who it was. Is your head astray, or what's come over you, I roared, more to bring myself to my senses than out of any real anger at her. For the knocking shook me the way they kept it up, and her whinging and half-screeching made it worse. All the time they were shouting, Shop! Shop! So I pulled on my shoes and a sport coat and went back to the window and called out, What do you want? Could you quieten the racket, or I'll not come down at all? And they say there's a child not well. Open up and see what you've got, pills or a powder or something in a bottle, one of them said. He stepped back off the footpath so I could see his face in the street lamp, and when the other moved, I knew them both. But bad and all as the knocking was, the quiet hit me worse. She was quiet herself now, lying dead still, whispering to watch out. At the bedroom door, I switched on the light. It's odd they didn't look for a chemist. Who are they anyway at this time of night? she asked me, with the eyes standing in her head. I know them to see, I said, but something made me reach and squeeze her hand across the bed before I went downstairs into the aisle of the shop. I stood there, going weak in the legs. I remember the stale smell of cooked meat or something coming through, and I went to open up. From then on, you know as much about it as I do. Did they say nothing? Nothing. What would they say? Were they in uniform, not masked in any way? They were barefaced, as they would be in the day, shites thinking they were the be-all and the end-all. Not that it is any consolation, but they were caught, I told him, and got jail. Big-limbed, decent, open-faced, he stood forgetful of everything now except whatever was welling up in his spoiled head, beginning to smile. You've put on weight since you did your courting in that big Austin you got the loan of on a Sunday night. Through life and death he had hardly aged. There always was an athlete's cleanliness, shining often, and except for the ravaged forehead and the blood, he was still the same rangy midfielder in a blue jersey and starched pants, the one stylist on the team, the perfect, clean, unthinkable victim. Forgive the way I have lived indifferent. Forgive my timid, circumspect involvement, I surprised myself by saying. Forgive my eye, he said, all that's above my head. And then a stun of pain seemed to go through him, and he trembled like a heat wave and faded. And you can go back to the uh, previous episode I read 
of Heaney here, where I read part eight from Station Island. And it's interesting that he encounters saints, and he uh, also writes of encountering the spirit of James Joyce. But uh, my favorite poems from Station Island remain the ones where he encounters people that he knew who were murdered in the Troubles. I don't have all of my Heaney books here with me in the car where I'm reading, otherwise I could tell you this man's name. Um, but those seem to be the, one that, the ones that strike me most deeply, the ones that uh, assume you know something of Heaney's life and that uh, give a bit of details on his life that this dead person would have remembered and would have remarked on. Um, it's also nice uh, if you're holding the book, if you're reading Station Island, looking at the page. You may not know it from how I was reading it, but it's written in uh, uh, Tirsitz, uh, Heaney's version of Terza Rima, uh, Dante's old, uh, old meter, um, or some version of it. And um, it's nice to see Heaney using that form basically for the vernacular. Uh, a friend of mine emailed me the other day after having listened to some of the other Heaney episodes, and he says that he's, uh, he admires Heaney the most when he uh, puts down the pyrotechnics, and I think this is definitely an example of that. Uh, a poem of mourning, a poem of memory, a bit of autobiography, uh, two and a half pages of plain mourning speech of the man who was uh, who owned a business, lived above the business, and was called down there to the front door in the middle of the night and was murdered. Um, that will tell you what the plain speech of poetry can be and what it can do. And here are two poems from Seamus Heaney's 1996 book, Spirit Level. The first is another short poem about his father, only three lines, and it is called The Strand. The dotted line my father's ash plant made on Sandy Mount Strand is something else the tide won't wash away. And the second one, I believe this is the last poem in the book, is just called Postscript. And sometime make the time to drive out west into County Clare, along the flaggy shore in September or October, when the wind and the light are working off each other, so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter, and inland among stones the surface of a slate-gray lake is lit by the earthed lightning of a flock of swans, their feathers ruffed and ruffling white on white, their fully grown, headstrong-looking heads tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there, a hurry through which known and strange things pass as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways, 
and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. And I can, uh, not, I can't understand, but I can see how it's poems like that late in Heaney's career that uh, people who are apt to criticize him uh, do criticize him for uh, sort of uh, sort of um, what they might see as corny wisdom of a poem like that. Uh, but I think it's uh, quite beautiful. Um, let's see what the next one is here. The next are two poems from two, three, three poems from his 2006 book, District and Circle. The first is called A Shiver and is just about someone uh, putting in a fence, basically. Um, but as Heaney told it, what he was thinking about at the time when he wrote it was the experience, mostly the political experience, that uh, any victim feels when a country or a force of immensely uh, superior strength to their own feels the might of that army or of that uh, political influence. But it's also about that huge force and what it is like to wield it or to, to wield it wisely or to not wield it wisely. How hard it is to manage might and force. And we might even think, even though this is just about putting in a fence um, and knocking the posts into the ground, um, it might even uh, have something to say about the atomic bomb episodes that I just did. This is called A Shiver. The way you had to stand to swing the sledge, your two knees locked, your lower back shock fast as shields in a testudo, spine and waist a pivot for the tight braced tilting rib edge. The way its iron head planted the sledge unyieldingly as a club footed last. The way you had to heft and then half rest its gathered force like a long-nursed rage about to let fly. Does it do you good to have known it in your bones, directable, withholdable at will, a first blow that could make air of a wall, a last one so unanswerably landed the staked earth quailed and shivered in the handle? And I never realized what wonderful sounds are in that poem. It sounds like uh, there's a lot of staccato. It's hard to read one line of that almost in one breath because the syllables make you stop. It feels like something that is indeed being hammered. This is, uh, the next poem is the very first part of the title poem, District and Circle, where Heaney goes uh, along one of the lines of the of the London Underground, uh, but I've always preferred just this very first poem in that sequence. This is what it says: Tunes from a tin whistle underground, curled up a corridor I'd been walking down, to where I knew I was always going to find my watcher on the tiles, 
cap by his side, his fingers perked, his two eyes eyeing me, in an unaccusing look I'd not avoid, or just not yet, since both were out to sea for ourselves. As the music larked and capered, I trigger and untrigger a hot coin held the ready. But now my gaze was lowered, for was our traffic not in recognition? Accorded passage, I would repocket and nod, and he, still eyeing me, would also nod. And I remember being in New York City uh, when my wife and I lived in Brooklyn for a time, uh, and seeing the uh, subway musicians there, either at the stops or inside the trains. And it's a nice image here of uh, someone playing a tin whistle, uh, getting a coin from Seamus Heaney, of all people, and you wonder if he recognized Seamus Heaney. And also just the recognition that Heaney has himself, uh, that his poetry is, if not akin, at least uh, in the same family, um, even if just a distant relative, as this tin whistle. And also just the idea of going underground, the uh, the underworld and death and having to pay your coin. Um, there's an awful lot in here. The third poem from District and Circle is called A Hagging Match. And this is another one about uh, uh, sort of like a shiver about someone doing outside work, except in this case it is Heaney's wife. Um, I don't think I've shared a poem specifically about Heaney's wife uh, since uh, there's a poem just called A Poem from his first collection uh, from a few months ago. But by, by old age, this is Heaney's idea of a love poem, and I, and I do think it works. He says, Axe thumps outside like a wave hits through a night fairy, you, whom I cleave to, hew to, splitting firewood. And that's short enough that I'll just read it again. It's called a hagging match. Axe thumps outside like a wave hits through a night fairy, you, whom I cleave to, hew to, splitting firewood. And I think if I remember this right, uh, there's a, an interview with him, you can probably find it on a podcast somewhere, um, where, he, where Seamus Heaney is at a book festival, so he's being interviewed in front of a crowd. And people sort of laugh at the idea that uh, Seamus Heaney is up in his attic, up, up, up in his uh, writing room, and it's his wife who's the one outside uh, chopping wood splitting the firewood. And I have two more poems, short poems, from Heaney's very last book, uh, Human Chain. And the first, he had a bunch of sequences in that last book. Um, and the first is from a sequence of poems called Colum Chiel, named after the great Irish monk and saint, I believe of the seventh or eighth century. And this is just the first part of that poem. My hand is cramped from penwork, 
my quill has a tapered point. Its bird mouth issues a blue-dark beetle sparkle of ink. Wisdom keeps welling in stream from my fine-drawn sallow hand. River run <clears throat> on the vellum of ink from green-skinned holly. My small runny pen keeps going through books, through thick and thin, to enrich the scholar's holdings, penwork that cramps my hand. And of course, in that sense, penwork that cramps my hand, what, what you're probably meant to go back to is Heaney's first poem in his first book, uh, where his father and his grandfather are digging in the yard, loving the cool hardness of what they're picking, loving the cool hardness in their hands. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun, as he ends his own poem. Um, and now, at, uh, at the end of his life, pen work that cramps my hand. And then, of course, connecting that all the way back to the great Irish saint and monk, and using the term River Run from uh, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It's all, it's all right there at the end. And, and the very last one from Human Chain is from a sequence called Hermit Songs. And he dedicates Hermit Songs to the, the critic who I believe is at Harvard, is still there, named Helen Vendler who's a great champion of his poetry, and he dedicated this sequence to her. This is part nine of that sequence. He says, A great one has put faith in meaning that runs through space like a word, screaming and protesting. Another in, quote, poet's imaginings and memories of love, end quote. Mine for now I put in steady-handedness, maintained in books against its vanishing. Book of Lismore, Kells, Armagh, of Lecan, its great yellow book. The battler, berry browned enshrined, the cured hides, the much tried pens. And of course he's talking about animal pens there, but in another way he is not. He's bringing the pen back again. Um, that may not be a great poem, uh, just as a one-off like that, um, but it takes in so much, especially since it is from the end of his life. Uh, Steady-handedness maintained in books against its vanishing, the hand again, the pen. Uh, the great religious books, the great uh, uh, illuminated religious books, the books of Linsmore, the Book of Kells, uh, done in the uh, in the Irish monasteries, and the Yellow Book of Lacan, that held so much of the great Irish mythology, and the the cattle, the cattle that is there throughout Heaney's poetry, and that becomes such a uh, such a presence in Irish mythology, especially with the Dáin Bocúnia, and here again the the idea of the the hides of the animals being used. Uh, being used for a writing surface. So you have all of this coming only a few years before Heaney's death. I figure that I 
Should just end it here then with Heaney. It's strange. I uh, and all the other. I think I've mentioned this. And all the other reading that I've done for the poets that I've gone all the way through so far, uh, Robinson Jeffers most especially, um, as I've gone through their poetry, I've only found them to be stronger and stronger the more uh, the more that I've read them. Reading Heaney over the past few months, he sort of slipped in a way in my estimation, as if my estimation means very much other than uh, as a as a mile marker in my own mind of where I am, really. But still, it's worth noticing um, that he does seem a little bit more slight, that there is the beginning of his career uh, from the early 60s, reaching a height in the mid-70s with North, and sort of dipping again until uh, 1990 or so um, with his book, uh, Seeing Things. And... But between North and Seeing Things, and after Seeing Things up until Human Chain, I'm not sure that I see anything quite as huge or as lasting as maybe I once did. And I just wanted to share a, a memory that I had before reading uh, one last piece of Heaney's poetry here. And that is, uh, I must have been, it was in the winter of 1995, so... Where would I have been? I would have been a junior in high school. Is that right? Or a sophomore in high school? Yeah, I would have been a sophomore in high school. And um, I remember going to a restaurant. Uh, by then I had started going to restaurants on my own. So this must have been a little later than that. In any case, whenever it was, um, and if the memory is correct, um, I met someone there who had a copy of the New York Times, and I think it was announcing his win for the Nobel Prize, which was, I think, in 95. And they had an excerpt from the very first poem. They had an excerpt from a poem in there, in the article. And it was the very first poem of Heaney's that I ever saw, that I ever read. And I've always associated... Uh, rest stops, uh, truck stop restaurants, places like that, with writing. Um, I've always associated going out to eat uh, by myself when I was younger with creativity, with uh, even in a small suburban way of leaving what is known to just going and sitting at a table and uh, the possibility of anything happening or of just finding quiet uh, eventually in an all-night restaurant where no one really knows who you are. There's also that possibility. Meeting a crowd of friends suddenly or of being given silence uh, at the long row of chairs up at the counter. And on this night I did meet with someone who showed me this poem. And I'll read it here again. This is part eight from uh, Heaney's sequence, uh, Squarings. And this is what it says. The annals say, those are the Irish annals, the annals say when the monks of Clonmacnoise were all at prayers inside the oratory, a ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep, it hooked itself into the altar rails, and then, 
as the big hull rocked to a standstill. A crewman shinned and grappled down the rope and struggled to release it, but in vain. This man can't bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So they did. The freed ship sailed and the man climbed back out of the marvelous as he had known it. And uh, as you'll remember from the episode I did on Heaney's book, Seeing Things, Heaney himself says that he got that from a small section in the Irish Annals, and it's just a small paragraph, and he turns that paragraph into a miraculous little poem. And at least in my life, this is strange, but... um, I remember reading about this anecdote in Whitley Strieber's book from the late 80s called Communion about his uh, experiences, his his claimed experiences of being abducted by aliens. And he used this, uh, not the poem, but the, the paragraph from the annals as, a, as an example of how long aliens have been among humans and how Frequently, indeed, they have been uh, in contact with us and apparently taking us onto their ships and doing whatever it is that they do. And I was a great fan of stories like that in high school, especially the X-Files. One of the great memories of my life has been, uh, just for for what it symbolizes, has been um, staying home uh, my freshman year of high school, staying home on a Friday night in September, it must have been. Uh, I was told, you know, basically, if you want to make friends, if you want to go out uh, uh, on, a, on a night in high school and, and be with people, you want to go to the Friday night football games. And I made sure that first Friday that instead of going to the game, I, I uh, stayed inside stayed at home and watched the first episode of this new TV series called The X-Files. So I connect that poem with, uh, not just with my early interest in things like Aliens and Art Bell's uh, overnight talk show, things like that. But then, of course, I connect it with my later knowledge of the Irish annals of, uh, of monks and my interest, wider interest in uh, religion and monasticism. Uh, Later on, uh, if you look at a copy of the American edition of Seeing Things, what it has on the front is the, that wonderful artifact uh, called the the Breuder, Breuger boat, I believe. Uh, A tiny uh, punched, I believe it's punched gold artifact from the Iron Age. so it brings archaeology in there with me. And just the idea of, I mean, this could very well just be a huge metaphor for uh, for creativity itself, someone climbing down the ropes and having to be freed. Um, in one sense, I've been talking to a friend of mine over email, and he and I both remember, we have vivid memories of encountering writers when we were much younger and there were certain of them who got a lot of attention and who seemed very, um, uh, they wrote about, they wrote a lot. Everybody gave them a lot of attention and you were sure that was going to be the person 
who is going to be the famous published writer. And it turns out that uh, even though my friend and I are not famous or widely published, we have discovered that we are sort of the only ones or one of the only ones out of our little groups that we had who are still uh, writing regularly. And in a way you can see this, uh, this person climbing down the, the rope uh, as being someone who discovered poetry when they were young and, and then just sort of lost it or, or the, the, the impulse to write. And so they had to get help from the monks to free themselves so they could go back to where they were. But there are some people, uh, whether foolishly or wisely or whatever it is, climb down the rope uh, and then uh, took the anchor out themselves and let the ship of where they had been fly off to wherever it was going and they were ready to enter into this new world. And for me, that has always been the world of poetry, the world of uh, folklore or mythology, um, of just trying to put things into words as best as I can. Uh, so that poem means an awful lot to me, especially because of where I first read it. I can still see the uh, the old-style uh, wood paneling in the in the truck stop restaurant, the uh, the the sort of new bar seats that could swivel, um, the, 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 the red countertop, uh, the place where the cooks were, um, the whole thing. A lot of it was very dark red, and that great memory there. Uh, even though the restaurant is long gone by now, um, I guess for posterity's sake, I will say that it was Applewood Restaurant at exit 218 along Interstate 90 in Ohio. Um, and that's just a a fantastic thing if I could have known in high school at that moment that uh, many years later I would be remembering that exact moment with that poem and suddenly uh, realizing how much affinity I would find with Heaney. Uh, it's quite moving. Um, but the next time that I encountered Seamus Heaney uh, was when a bookstore opened in my hometown and my friends and I all tried to do our best to buy books at this new bookstore. It was not a chain. It was someone who just wanted to open a bookstore. And very soon, even though it was just put into a, the back of a downtown uh, building, uh, even then, um, or especially then, I guess in a small town, the idea of charging full price for new books uh, in a place like that was not really the the best idea, especially if your clientele are either late teenagers or college students who dropped out of college and in any case don't have much money. But we all tried to buy new books there whenever we could just to help support the place. And the book that I bought was Heaney's translation of Beowulf. And I don't have my copy of it down here. Maybe I can go and get it. Hold on one second. Open this door. Yeah, it's somewhere. 
any case, so what I my first my first impression then of shame. This was before I remembered uh, that that I had encountered his poetry years before. My first impression of Heaney was reading his introduction to his translation of Beowulf, and there's a uh, a single syllable of uh, of of Old English that begins Beowulf, and many other translations uh, either make it archaic or something like that, and they translate it as hark, or um, something like that. I don't have the other translations at hand either, of course. And Heaney gives a great, uh, a great explanation about why he chose the word so, instead of hark, or look, or uh, you imagine someone uh, in a Shakespearean or a stage outfit saying hark or something like that and it seems very dated immediately and you want to stop listening. Uh, but he did it with the very casual, uh, the very storytelling syllable of so. And he realized uh, in this passage that what he wanted, the, the kind of sound, the kind of music that he wanted his his translation of Beowulf to have was to have the uh, the the sound of the people he grew up with, the rural people that he grew up with in his family, and I admired that so much. I knew hardly anything about Heaney at the time, uh, as much as that introduction told me, and uh, it wasn't until a few years later that uh, I actually found his other books and started to read them in earnest all the way through. But I had such admiration for that. It was such a lesson about how to get on with poetry. And when I came to write my own long poem, To the House of the Sun, there was still that lingering lesson was, was always in the back of my mind there, that it should be something that... Uh, that could come out of the mouths of working people. Um, and I've just never forgotten it. And so the very last thing that I wanted to share here from Seamus Heaney's poetry is an excerpt from his translation of Beowulf. It's from the very end. And I'm almost positive that I will continue to read bits and pieces from Dennis O'Driscoll's book of interviews that he did with Heaney that I was doing uh, up until about a month ago. And there's another book that just came out about Heaney by, uh, by Roy Foster that I'm sure that I will read excerpts from. And at some point, I'm sure they will, they will have an edition of his letters, and I will share all of that here. But for now, and since this is the very last bit of poetry that I'm going to share by Seamus Heaney for a long time, until I do a complete reread of him and see what I think again. It's worth pointing out what I said, I think, the very first episode about Heaney that I did. And that is that it's very easy to see him as um, having a sort of uh, nostalgic look back at nature or back at his rural upbringing. Or it's easy to see him as being, uh, by the time he wins the Nobel, of being sort of a repository of uh, uh, easy poetic wisdom 
there's that uh, postscript poem that I just read that that I can imagine people criticizing. But there's also a great darkness and a great violence in a lot of his stuff, especially the rural stuff. I didn't read the poem he wrote about uh, having to uh, kill cats on the farm as a boy and all of that. Um, and so this, this piece from uh, from Beowulf, I think, is a good uh, way to end because it is a good reminder and even a good reset for those who think otherwise about Haney. This is one of my favorite passages uh, of anything. This is after Beowulf has died. This is from uh, nearly the very end of the poem. The Geet people built a pyre for Beowulf, stacked and decked it until it stood foursquare, hung with helmets, heavy war shields, and shining armor, just as he had ordered. Then his warriors laid him in the middle of it, mourning a lord far famed and beloved. On a height they kindled the hugest of all funeral fires. Fumes of wood smoke billowed darkly up. The blaze roared and drowned out their weeping. Wind died down and flames wrought havoc in the hot bone house, burning it to the core. They were disconsolate and wailed aloud for their lord's decease. A Geet woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. Then the Geet people began to construct a mound on a headland, high and imposing, a marker that sailors could see from far away. And in ten days they had done the work. It was their hero's memorial. What remained from the fire they housed inside it, behind a wall as worthy of him as their workmanship could take it. And they buried torques in the barrow and jewels, and a trove of such things as trespassing men had once dared to drag from the hoard. They let the ground keep that ancient treasure, gold under gravel, gone to earth, as useless to men now as it ever was. Then twelve warriors rode around the tomb, chieftain's sons, champions in battle, all of them distraught, chanting in dirges, mourning his loss as a man and a king. They extolled his heroic nature and exploits, and gave thanks for his greatness, which was the proper thing. For a man should praise a prince whom he holds dear, and cherishes memory when that moment comes, when he has to be conveyed from his bodily home. So the Geet people, his hearth companions, sorrowed for the Lord who had been laid low. They said that of all the kings upon the earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people and keenest to win fame. And actually, I think that is the very end of Beowulf. Um, and when you consider, I'm sure I will come to it, in the interviews with Dennis O'Driscoll, that Heaney said that he almost took Beowulf on because he didn't want to do it, because he wanted to see it as, as uh, 
an assignment that he might not be too passionately attached to. It's kind of incredible that he came out, that he was able to come out with that. But that also is the power of something that I will hopefully get to here, if I can ever uh, learn to read it out loud convincingly, and that is uh, the Old English, the uh, Anglo-Saxon. Um, that is the power of the Anglo-Saxon poetry, this great sense of mourning and doom that is hovering over just about everything. And while Heaney doesn't match the, uh, or doesn't try to replicate the alliteration of Beowulf in the original, he does get that dour, downbeat sense of doom here. And really the part that I wanted to highlight uh, was the, the Geet woman. I'll read it again because this sounds like uh, Afghanistan right now. Uh, it sounds like uh, anywhere in the world where this can happen. Um, I don't say that as a, uh, as I've mentioned uh, on the, the bomb episode. It's not a criticism of war or imagining that we can do a, a terribly great deal in the end about much of this. Um, we can certainly try to stop atrocities when they happen, but uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we can never stop all of them. And this Geet woman really is singing from the 8th century backwards and the 8th century forward. She could be uh, in a play by Euripides. She could be uh, back in Gilgamesh. If there is someone, uh, I remember the 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 prehistoric uh, cemetery in Egypt at Jebel Sahaba. Long before there was any kind of uh, Egyptian civilization, you have a you have a uh, a cemetery there of filled with I think dozens of people who died by violence. Uh, this woman has been there the entire time, and I'll just read this again. A Geet woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies and piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. And we might as well might as well do let's see might as well do postscript again and see how these two sound side by side. And I will end it here. Uh, these two are the two moods of Heaney, and this is a good one to end all of them with. And sometime make the time to drive out west into County Clare along the flaggy shore. In September or October, when the wind and the light are working off each other, so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter, and inland among stones the surface of a slate-gray lake is lit by the earthed lightning of a flock of swans, their feathers roughed and ruffling white on white, their fully grown headstrong-looking heads tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there, 
a hurry through which known and strange things pass, as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways, and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.